what a time of worship, right? Man, that was awesome. I could just sing that song one more time. That is just great. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Hey, if you're new here today, welcome. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here at First Free Church. We're so glad you're joining with us. That was a great time of worship. And we're going to keep it going. We're just going to worship in a different way. We're going to switch from worshiping with our singing to the Lord to worshiping by studying His Word. So we're going to do that right now. We're going to dig into the Bible. We're in a series on the parables right now. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, and your Bibles, feel free. Matthew chapter 18 is where we are going to be. And uh, before we do that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a little, little talk about kids here. With kids, we all teach them the same basic phrases when they're growing up. We teach them things like yes and no, of course. We want to know what they want, what they don't want most of the time. We teach them things like please and thank you. That's very polite. And then we teach them things like I'm sorry and I forgive you. And that's what we want our kids to know. There are a few other things we would add to that, but I tell you what, around our house, I'm sorry and I forgive you get a lot of use. Because it always seems like there is one kid who is annoying another kid, or this kid hurt this kid, maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose, or maybe this kid destroyed this kid's craft. And so we are constantly teaching them and instructing them and asking them to say you're sorry. Are you sorry for what you did? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, now you need to forgive. And we do that. Because we want our kids to learn to be able to apologize and to be able to forgive, to be able to let things go. Because we know, and if you're a parent, you know this is true of your kids, that when you have kids who they do something, one kid does something bad to the other kid, what that kid really wants to do is take things up a notch. So if this kid hits this kid, this kid wants to hit this kid harder. And it goes back and forth and it escalates back and forth until it gets out of hand. And so we want our kids to learn to say, I'm sorry, and to say, I forgive you, to apologize and forgive. And that works pretty well when they're little. It's not too bad. Last week, my, uh, my wife and I took the kids to Mod Pizza. It's pretty close to our house. It's one of our favorite pizza places because everybody can just get what they want, right? You, you go through the line, you pick your toppings, you pick your toppings, everybody gets what they want. So it makes it good. And my wife and I were noticing as we made our way, most of the way through the meal, we realized... I think this is the first time we have come to Mod, sat down, had an entire meal together, and there was no fighting. Wow, what a milestone. Like we've reached a certain level as a family. Now we've got a little one that's 18 months, so her time is coming. But at least for now, the, the two older ones managed to get through the entire time without, without an argument or fight. And we were sort of glorying in this. and Like, wow, we've arrived as parents. This is amazing. We get out to the car and one kid puts their arm in the other kid's space. And so that kid has to shove it away. And well, that didn't feel very good, and that kind of hurt, and now I've got a bruise, and I think my arm might be broken, so i got to hit them in the face. And it escalates back and forth until one of us in the front seat turns around and says, what are you doing? Cut it out. Why would you do that to each other? You need to say you're sorry. Are you sorry? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, do you forgive? Yes, I forgive. Okay, and I'm, I'm not kidding you. Within two minutes, everybody's back to love and laughing and having fun together. It happens so quickly when you're kids. You can just, I'm sorry, I forgive you. We move on, we let it go, and we have fun together. We don't want them to hold on to grudges or bitterness. We don't want them to hold on to the offenses they have inside. And what happens as those kids grow older is it gets harder and harder to let those things go. What we've actually learned is the ability to make it look like we're saying we're sorry, to make it look like we actually forgive the other person, when the reality is oftentimes we're just putting on a show and inside we're still holding on to the offense. 
And isn't that what we struggle with as adults so many times? I know we're not all adults in here, but as, as, as young people that are growing up and as adults, we struggle with letting those things go. We hold on to those offenses. And a lot of us carry around unforgiveness, like a hundred pound backpack that just weighs us down and we don't even realize it anymore. We're so used to walking around hunched over with this thing that we don't realize we've been carrying around this bitterness and this unforgiveness and these offenses, other people, what they've done to us, the hurts from our past, and we just haven't let those things go, and it weighs us down, and it actually has a, a physical effect on us. Someone once said that holding a grudge against another person is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. And that's really what it is. Mayo Clinic did some research into this, and they found that there were a ton of physical effects that not forgiving people can have on your body. Effects like stress and anxiety and depression. And they said in their, in their article on this, people who don't forgive bring their past bitterness into otherwise good experiences. So you ever wonder why sometimes you're with somebody and you think this is a wonderful thing, this should be great, and they found something to criticize? Sometimes it's because we're bringing our past into what should be a good experience. We're bringing our past hurts and bitterness and grudges and offenses and we're taking them all and we bring them with us because we haven't let them go. We carry them around on our back. We, we, we fixate on the past and so we have a hard time enjoying the present. But forgiveness, real forgiveness is like medicine for the heart. It is healing. It is redemptive. It improves mental health. Mayo says. It decreases stress and anxiety. It can lower blood pressure. It can reduce depression. It can lead to a stronger immune system. It can improve heart health. That's from Mayo Clinic. Studies show more and more that our emotions and our thoughts and forgiveness in particular have an effect on our bodies physically. So this is not just a heart thing or a mental thing. This is a whole being thing. We have to learn to forgive. I can remember the most amazing story of forgiveness I ever heard. It was 2006, and I just watched this from a distance because I wasn't where it took place. But I remember hearing about this little one-room Amish schoolhouse called the West Nickel Mines School. And you probably heard about this too. And, and you know, whenever there's this big national story that takes place, we kind of watch from a distance and we were just waiting for that next piece to come out. Like, why did this happen? And what did this happen? What are the details? Give it to me all. And so I remember kind of tracking this whole thing. And there was this delivery driver named Charles Roberts who pulled his truck up to this one-room schoolhouse. He got out, he went inside, he told him he was looking for a, a part that goes on the truck, a clevis pin that attaches the hitch and everything. And uh, they didn't have it, obviously. Why would it be there? So he went back out to his truck and he came back in with a gun. He ordered all of the boys to leave and he tied up all of the girls, ages 6 through 13. The teacher got away. The teacher ran away and called 911, so the police were on their way. He tied up Charles tied up all these little girls. I think there were about 10 of them. And when the police arrived, they started to approach the schoolhouse, and he looked out the window and saw them, and he yelled out at them to leave. And if they didn't leave immediately, he would start shooting. And they didn't leave, and he started shooting. And then he turned the gun on himself. And I remember reading about this and thinking that this was just absolutely tragic. Every murder is tragic, but this situation, this setting, you understand, is just like, oh, these, these girls and, and this community and, and this guy, why would he do this? And, and honestly, I felt angry. I, I didn't just feel angry. I felt hatred for this man, Charles. 
I could not believe the things he had done. Why would he do this? It just makes absolutely no sense. And it's horrifying. And it's not just about the, the girls who lost their lives. Although that is horrible. But then there's the girls who survived. Because some survived. Some with permanent damage. Some with permanent brain damage. There's the teacher that got away. But, now, but look what happened to her students. There's the boys who were let go and ordered to go. But their sisters and their classmates were still back there. There's the, the families and everything that they went through. And I just remember feeling such deep hatred for this man. And then the story shifted. And the news changed completely. Away from its attention on the horror of what happened in that schoolhouse and onto the response of the Amish community outside of it. One grandfather of one of the murdered girls was overheard on the day of the shooting telling his family members, do not hate that man. Don't even think evil of him. Another father, Amish father, said of the killer, he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and now he's standing before a just God. That was his response to the loss of his girl. Soon we learned that Charles did have a wife. He had three kids at home. So members of the Amish community went and visited them and they took them gifts and they they comforted them and they extended their forgiveness to their family and said, we don't hold anything against you. They visited Charles' parents. They visited his parents and one of the fathers from the Amish community held Charles' father for an hour as he sobbed over what his son did. They visited Charles' father-in-law. And mother-in-law, they comforted them. They set up a fund for Charles' family. They attended his funeral. It's amazing. After all of this, Charles' widow, Marie, she wrote a letter to the Amish community. It said, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately needed. Gifts you've given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. And I watched all of this unfold from a distance. And I got to be honest with you. I was absolutely floored by how the families of these young girls could be more forgiving of this man than I was. It's shocking. Forgiveness. It's radical forgiveness. It's uncomfortable. It's extravagant forgiveness. It's so uncomfortable that, that many people condemned them for it and said, how could you do that? How could you let them off the hook so quickly? How could you be so quick to forgive this guy? They absolutely couldn't understand it. And please don't hear this story and think, oh, wow, everything's wonderful in the Amish community. That's not the case. There are real problems there. But this one community at this one point in time showed the world what radical, shocking, uncomfortable, extravagant forgiveness really looks like. And it was absolutely amazing. Forgiveness that was so radical that it made people squirm. That's what I want to talk about today. Radical, extravagant, uncomfortable, shocking forgiveness because it's what God has for you and it's what God wants from us for others. And I think it's really possible. I listened to the song before we got into the message time today. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. I think it's really possible that today there's gonna be some hearts that are gonna be opened up and God's gonna do some work today in our hearts because there's stuff we've been holding on to that we haven't even realized 
We don't even get it. We, we think of our past hurts. We think of what people have done with us. And we don't realize we are holding on to unforgiveness. And God wants us to forgive and to let things go. And there's a very important reason for that that we will get into later. But this may be painful. This next 30 minutes or so may be painful for some of us. It may bring up some hurts and some trauma and some issues that we haven't dealt with in a while. And, and honestly, I think the Holy Spirit may just do that. And there may be things that pop into your mind, stuff that you've been holding on to and lugging around unforgiveness for, but this is going to be so, so worth it if we follow the teaching of Jesus, if we dig into this parable today, and if we do the thing that he says we're supposed to do as his followers. The passage is in Matthew 18. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Let me give you the context for it because this is going to help you understand why Jesus dives into this parable. So Jesus is teaching his disciples about offenses. This is called the Matthew 18 principle. You've probably heard of this before. Many of you, I'm sure, have. The Matthew 18 principle is how you deal with offenses in your life. And so Jesus is telling them that if someone sins against you, if they offend you in some way, then your responsibility as his follower is to go to them directly, personally, and privately and to talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. You don't go talk to other people about it. You don't, you don't spread it around. You go directly to that person and say, hey, this thing offended me. This, this bothered me. I think you sinned against me. I think you had the wrong motivation here, whatever it is. And you talk to that person. And if they hear you and, and maybe, they, maybe they apologize for it or maybe they explain and say, oh, that's not what I meant at all. I'm so sorry you took it that way or whatever it is. If you get resolution out of that, then great problem solved. We move on. Just like the kids. I'm sorry. I forgive you. We move on. If they don't hear you, that's still not a license to go talk to everybody else about it. He says you take one or two witnesses with you, or two or three witnesses with you, that in the presence of two or three witnesses, everything may be established, and you go have the conversation again. And you, and you, you do the exact same thing. And if they still don't listen to you, and you still don't have resolution of the issue, and it's still there, then he says you still don't have license to go talk to everybody about it. You go to church leaders. You go to the church leadership and they come in as mediators and they bring scripture with them and they dig into the situation and they try to help people understand from a biblical perspective, what do we need to do here? What's the right course of action here? Was someone in the wrong? Was this a misunderstanding? What's going on? But you bring in church leaders to help with that. And Jesus is realistic about it. He says, that still may not solve it. That still may not take care of it, but that's the process that you're supposed to go through. Now, Peter is listening to all of this teaching and Peter is thinking, yeah, Lord, but let's say I do that and then they do something to me again. And then they do it again, and they do it again. Like, how many times do I have to go through this process? How many times do I have to be willing to forgive someone if they have sinned against me or offended me in some way? And that's what gets us to our parable today. This is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 is where we're going to start. Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now, what you got to understand is that the Jewish custom was to forgive somebody three times. If you forgive somebody three times and they did the thing a fourth time, you were off the hook. You could just not forget. You could hold a grudge against them. Um, and Peter here says seven times. Why did he say seven times? Well, I don't know. Maybe he was trying to be extra spiritual. Maybe he thought this, you know, like, hey, three times is normal. I'm going to say, I'm going to double it and add one. Like, this is a, oh, what a great guy. And the other disciples, you know, they might have been thinking, wow, Peter, you're so spiritual. You're such a good guy. Wow, we would have only said three, but you said seven. I don't think that's very likely. I actually think they probably, what a showboat. I think that's what the other disciples were thinking. My goodness, come on, Peter, really? You got to say seven? Come on. That's not what we do around here. You're just showing off for Jesus. But here's what Jesus says. He goes, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Pop quiz. Does anybody know what 70 times seven is? 
490. If you're a VeggieTales fan, you should know that answer. You should have that memorized. 490 times. Now, does that mean that Jesus is saying we need to have these big forgiveness books and we have columns and at the top of these columns, we put people's names and we start putting tally marks in there so that, ah, they got to 489, 490, 491. No forgiveness for you. It's done. I do not have to forgive you anymore. No, that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus did was he took the number that Peter gave and he, he amplified it in such a ridiculous way to basically say there is no limit to the forgiveness you are supposed to have. It's not to say you're keeping track of that forgiveness. And honestly, somebody told me after the first service, if you're keeping track up to 490, then you didn't really forgive those 490 times. And so what Jesus is basically saying is how often are you supposed to forgive? Uh, to put it into a modern phrase, to infinity and beyond. There is no limit. There are no boundaries to how often you are supposed to forgive someone. And the question, of course, is why is that the, the case here? Why do we have to forgive that many times? Why can't there be some limit where we can say, that's it, I'm done. You've crossed the line. Now I get to hate you. I mean, isn't that what we like to do? Like, man, you know, they did it a couple times. They did it that third time. And now uh, I can't stand you anymore. I'm going to hold this against you. We naturally want to get to that point. So why? And, and Jesus is going to tell a parable to explain the answer to that question. Why is it that we need to have unlimited forgiveness? A parable, you'll remember, is a story that illustrates a truth. And the word parable literally means bola, which is to throw, like to throw a ball, and para, which means alongside. So it means to throw alongside. And so what Jesus is doing with the parables is he's throwing a story alongside a truth to make the truth more memorable and relatable. So he's throwing a story alongside the truth. And here's the story. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Now millions of dollars is a great translation because it communicates to us the vastness of this. The literal words here are 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, it's a, a weight of like gold or silver, or so, precious metals, something like that. We don't know exactly what the, the precious metal in, in view here was, but 10,000 is a lot. 10,000 talents is a whole lot. King Herod's annual salary was said to be 900 talents. So this is many times King Herod's annual salary. It's estimated that for the average person to repay a debt of 10,000 talents would take 164,000 years. This is many lifetimes of debt that this guy has to repay. And, and it's, it's ridiculous on purpose. The whole point is to give this extreme example of just how absolutely crazy this debt is that this servant has. Verse 25, he couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. That escalated quickly. Wow. That's a pretty harsh thing. And to our ears especially, we hear that and go, whoa, 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 he, he owed a debt, so now he declares bankruptcy, right? No, he gets sold as a slave along with his family and all of his stuff. And we think, well, that's really, really harsh. But you have to understand that in this culture, this was how you handled big debts. It actually would have been unrealistic for Jesus to say anything else. For Jesus to not say, yeah, this guy, he couldn't pay this massive debt. The only way this, this king could recoup his debt from this guy is to actually sell him off as a slave and sell all his stuff. It's, it's the most money he could get out of him. That would be the normal course of action that would happen in this time, in this culture, if you had a huge debt like this. 
You couldn't just go file bankruptcy and get out of it. They didn't have those kinds of protections. And so you have to understand, Jesus is not condoning this activity. For him to say anything different would have made no sense in this context, in this history. And besides the fact this is a fictional story and it's a king, he can kind of do whatever he wants in the story. But what messes people up about this parable is when they think that the king represents God. And I can see why they would get there. Later on, Jesus is going to compare the king and God in some ways. But we have to understand the king in this parable is not meant to be the same thing as God. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this situation. The kingdom of heaven is like the situation. Not God is this king. We cannot treat the two as if they're the same. That would be reading more into the story than what's meant to be there. The king does not represent God. He gets compared to God. And so his servant who has borrowed all this money is before him. He cannot repay it. And so he's going to be sold into slavery. And here's what happens. The man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me and I will pay it all. And then something amazing happens. His master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. And what's so crazy about this is that the king actually rejected the man's offer. The man's offer was not, hey, can you just let me off the hook? It was, I will pay you back everything, just give me a little more time. Just please don't sell me off as a slave. And the king rejected that offer and said, I will do you one better and I will just wipe the debt clean. It is no more. Shocking, radical debt forgiveness because of this man's humility, because of his penitence. His debt is forgiven. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this situation. It's easy for us to see what that means, right? We are all sinners who owe this massive sin debt to God. We have all basically committed treason against God and his design for us. That's one of the ways the Bible talks about sin is as a debt, as a debt that needs to be paid and it's impossible for us to pay it. Many, many lifetimes we could not pay it just like this ridiculously huge debt the servant owed to the king. And yet God in his mercy made it possible for us to have forgiveness from that sin debt if we will just humbly ask for it. And sometimes it's hard for us to appreciate what a big deal that is. We have no way to be right with God without what Jesus did on the cross. And the disciples listening to the story can't even fully understand the reality of what he's saying. They can get a part of it, but now us looking back on it, we can see the picture so much more clearly. We know that God sent Jesus to die on a cross to be that payment for our sin, to pay that penalty for us, to pay off our debt in his name. And here's the thing, the really important thing that I want you to remember, and don't miss this, if we don't take sin seriously, we won't take forgiveness seriously. We have to understand the gravity and the weight of our sin, all of that put on Jesus Christ. The Bible says he was made sin for us. He took on the sin of the whole world. He was separated from the Father. What an unbelievable thing that he went through, taking on all of that sin. You know about the sin in your life and how some of that has impacted you and the guilt and the shame and the horror that you feel for some of the things that you have done and that I have done. Now imagine that times billions, the weight of the world on his shoulders, what Jesus went through. If you don't understand and appreciate the gravity of sin, how can you appreciate the forgiveness that we've been given? But we treat it casually. We often take it for granted. But here's what you need to know. God's forgiveness for you is extravagant. God's forgiveness for you is extravagant. And you did nothing to earn it. 
and you don't deserve it. Notice that the king in this story does not ask the servant to repay it back little by little. That's not how it works. The debt was forgiven in an instant. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. God's forgiveness is extravagant. It's shocking. It's radical. It's uncomfortable. It's actually so uncomfortable that many people, when they hear about this, say there must be something more to it. That can't be it. There's got to be more. There's got to be some good works I can throw in there to sort of sweeten the deal for God. And what we don't understand is that all of those attempts to contribute something to our salvation actually cheapen the payment that God made on our behalf. It cheapens what he did for us. God's forgiveness of you is extravagant. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Jesus goes on in the parable. In verse 28, he says, But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Now, do you see how comically small this debt is by comparison? A few thousand dollars. Yes, it's still a good amount of money, but it's nothing compared to what this servant owed the king. And he gets violent with him. He grabs him by the throat. His fellow servant, verse 29, fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I will pay it, he pleaded. Now, does that sound familiar? But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. The contrast here is striking, isn't it? A massive debt that was forgiven, a small debt that is unforgiven. A servant who looked humble and penitent in front of the king, but as soon as he got into an area where he had some power and control, all of a sudden he was arrogant and self-serving. And just a little sidebar here, sometimes we as Christians can be this way too. We know in the right circles to talk the right way and act the right way and say the right things to look like we're spiritual and look like we've got it together. We've got all the biblical lingo. And and some of that can be legitimate and true and valid. And at the same time, when we get into a space where we have some control and some power and some authority, all of a sudden the, the real you comes out. Maybe it's at work and you know how to do and say the right things with your boss to look like you're doing a great job. But when you get to the people that report to you, you treat them like scum. Or maybe it's our families where we know how to act the right way at church, dads and moms, but we go home and all of a sudden when we're in charge, we're, we're mean and, and rotten and cranky and nasty and in some cases maybe even abusive to our family members. It's wrong. We act just like this servant, this hypocritical servant. We forget the fact that God is watching everywhere. Proverbs 15.3 says, The Lord is watching everywhere, keeping his eye on both the evil and the good. And we need to be the same person at home as we are in public, the same person at work as we are at church. And that doesn't mean we need to get meaner in public. We need to get nicer at home and at work and with other people. We need to be the same person no matter where we are. Well, this did not stay a secret for long. The king found out what the servant did because other servants saw this. They were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt. Now, why was the king so upset? Was he upset because the servant tried to collect on a debt? No, that's, that's not at all. He was upset because of the hypocrisy. The hypocrisy of the servant who would accept forgiveness of this massive debt and yet not extend that forgiveness to someone else, not pay it forward, so to speak. 
And so the king was disrespected by this. It's very important to understand this. The point of the parable is not that it's wrong to collect on a debt. It was wrong to be unforgiving because he had just been forgiven so much. It's strange credulity. How could you do this after being forgiven this massive debt? How could you treat someone else so poorly? Why would you not? And it's disrespectful to the king. And you might think, wow, this is so unfair for the king to go back on his forgiveness. But remember, he's the king. It's It's his kingdom. This guy just disrespected his forgiveness of debt. There was an obligation there. And now he has the right And you could even say maybe he's justified in punishing this man because he did not extend the same forgiveness that the king extended to him. And you can see the parallels between this story and the kingdom of heaven, can't you? The massive amount that is forgiven and the need to pay that forgiveness forward. But just in case we missed it, Jesus says at the very end in verse 35, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Now, I got to be honest with you. That verse could really mess with my theology. That's what God will do to us if we don't forgive. It sounds like Jesus is saying that if we refuse to forgive a brother or sister from our heart, that God is actually going to take back the forgiveness he gave to us. You can see how you would get there from the parable. And this has messed up a lot of people who have read this and thought maybe that's what's going on here. But remember, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this situation. It's similar to, it's a similitude parable. That means we shouldn't try to pick it apart to build a systematic theology. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. He's not teaching this in a way that we can pick apart every detail and draw lots of inferences from it to determine what is theologically going to happen. And something I want to point out to you that makes me think that this is probably not a situation where Jesus is saying that God's going to take his forgiveness back from you, is that when Jesus is talking in other places and other parables about things like hell, he describes someone being thrown out to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth or something of that nature. There's nothing like that here. The man isn't killed. The man isn't thrown out of the kingdom. He's actually kept in the kingdom, but put in prison. He is punished. He is punished for his actions as a hypocrite. And there is a fractured relationship there between him and the king. Jesus tells his followers elsewhere that however you judge others by that same measure, you will be judged. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the Bible says there's no longer any condemnation for sin. We're not condemned for that sin, but that doesn't mean we're not going to have consequences. That doesn't mean we're not going to face discipline and punishment for that sin. In fact, God promises it. In Hebrews chapter 12, he says, My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as a child. When we face discipline and consequence and punishment from God as a follower of Jesus, it's a good thing. It's an encouraging thing. I've counseled people in the past who were absolutely distraught at how it looked like God was was just punishing them in their life. And they just felt horrible and miserable. And I said, good. That's the Holy Spirit at work convicting you and making you miserable for that thing that he wants you to get away from and turn away from. And sometimes we think, well, does, that, does the fact that I'm just feeling absolutely miserable about this and I'm just under a rock over this, does that mean that God doesn't love me anymore? Does that mean he doesn't care about me? Does that mean that, that I'm not his child anymore? And I would say, no, that means you're his child who he loves and he wants you to get back on the right path. We know that when we sin as followers of Jesus, we will face discipline. 
and we will face consequences, we will face punishment, and not forgiving is one of those things that God takes very seriously. Why is that? Because he has forgiven us so much. And it would be hypocritical for us to then not forgive others. God wants your forgiveness of others to be extravagant. His forgiveness for you is extravagant, and he wants your forgiveness of others to be extravagant. We pay forward his forgiveness in this way. How many times do we have to do it? To infinity and beyond. 490, seven times 70. Your forgiveness should have no boundaries, no limits. Not because they've earned it, not because they deserve it, but because of what Jesus did for you. And if he took care of this massive sin debt, remember, you can't appreciate forgiveness unless you understand the gravity of sin. When you understand what a big deal that was for God to forgive you of that, then whatever somebody did to you has to pale in comparison. Your ability to forgive others is a direct reflection of your understanding of what Jesus did for you. It's one of the ways we live out the gospel in our everyday lives. That's something I want to clarify before we close here is that forgiveness does not necessarily mean you forget it all. And that's important to understand. We use this phrase, forgive and forget. And, and the reality is there are times when people hurt us in a way and we need to forgive them so we're not holding on to a grudge and we're not holding on to bitterness against them and we don't, we don't hate them. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we have to let them do it again. Forgiveness does not mean they get to be back in your inner circle necessarily. Forgiveness does not mean you're good buddies again. It means you don't hate them. You don't have bitterness against them. You have healthy boundaries. Forgiveness does not wipe out healthy boundaries. It just removes that inner bitterness. I think that's an important clarification to make or we can walk away and think the wrong thing about what Jesus is teaching here. But there is one other aspect of forgiveness I want to touch on briefly. And it's not part of the parable. But on topic of forgiveness, there's one other thing that I think is related to this that we need to talk about a little bit. And we don't often talk about this in churches. I'm just going to give it to you first and then explain. The principle is this. God wants you to forgive yourself. That may sound strange, so let me explain. Remember, God's, ex God's forgiveness for you is extravagant. God wants your forgiveness of others to be extravagant. And God wants you to forgive yourself. Here's where I get that. Romans chapter 8 says there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. John chapter 3 says there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. 2 Corinthians 5 says anyone who belongs to Christ is a new person. Romans 4 says what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. And maybe what you are carrying around right now is unforgiveness toward others, but maybe what you are carrying around right now is unforgiveness toward yourself that God has already dealt with. If you've confessed that thing to God, if you've taken it before him and said, I'm sorry I did this, Lord. Please forgive me. I know it was wrong. The Bible teaches us that there is no condemnation. There is no judgment. He is faithful and just, the Bible says, to forgive us. So let me leave you with this final thought. When we fail to forgive ourselves, it is because we are not resting in God's forgiveness of us. When we fail to forgive ourselves, it's because we're not resting in God's forgiveness of us. Ephesians 1 says he purchased our freedom with his blood and forgave our sins. Psalm 103 says he removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. Hebrews 10 says he will never again remember our sins. 
Who are we to hold on to what God has forgiven? Who are we to not let go of what God has let go? God wants you to forgive yourself. There are two ways that you can disrespect God's forgiveness, his extravagant forgiveness of you. Two ways that you can look at that massive debt that was paid off for you and not respect it like you should. One is by not forgiving others and carrying around unforgiveness for others. The other is by not forgiving yourself and not resting in the forgiveness that he has for you and making that a reality in your life. Don't hold on to the guilt and the shame that God doesn't want for you. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, it is such a challenging thing for us to let go of what you have let go. And God, I know it is not easy. I know that the enemy loves to bring those things up to us again and again. And as we put on the armor of God, all of us have those little chinks in the armor, those weak spots where the devil likes to throw his fiery darts at us. He likes to remind us of things that we've done in the past or things other people have done to us. And we carry around these burdens of unforgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would bring to our minds right now the things that we need to do business with you on today. The things that we need to let go of. The things that we need to forgive. The things that you have already forgiven. Help us to live out the gospel in our lives. To appreciate the fact that you have forgiven us this massive debt. And so for us to go forgive others should be an afterthought. It should be, it should be like, like that Amish community showed. Like, of course, we're not going to hate. Of course, we're not going to have bitterness. Of course, we're going to forgive. We're not going to allow things to get between us because of what you've done for us. Jesus, as we remember your sacrifice for us today, as we practice the Lord's Supper here, communion, we remember that debt that you paid for us. The fact that you took all of our sin onto you so that we can be free, so that we can be healed, so that we can live a life that is transformed and, and so different. Lord, I pray that we would not take it for granted today. I pray that, that today this would not just be some ritual that we go through and, and we just sort of go through the motions, but that this would remind us of that forgiveness so that we can go and be forgiving. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.